Oh. Okay, people. <coughs> I'd like to um, read Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up? Ephraim, how can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Things that makes you think? Comments? Reactions? I'm sorry? A torn parent, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember reading this and just thinking it was probably one of the more beautiful things I've read like in this in this course. It's just it is so very and especially you know, when you read it slowly and you really sink it in, it's just so very compassionate and loving and it's just a very beautiful picture of you know, how God Israel and, and, and us. <clears throat> yeah. But it is angry as well as compassionate. That is, don't, don't simplify things for God. Um, God, is, God is torn apart. 
Mm. What I, mm. Yeah, well, what I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, of course, and that's that's kind of what makes it so beautiful because it, you can almost feel the pulsing just sadness mm. because mm. God mm. knows that he has to kind of punish his children because that's just, that's, that's what needs to be done. But yet, through that, it's not where in the rest of it you can easily maybe construe it as just some angry, vengeful God. But you read these parts and by no means... Can can you construe God this way because it's just he's just overflowing with just tension and it's just it's just gripping him, but he needs to do it, but he really just wants to It's part of um, uh, our being made in God's image is that we have strength of emotions like God. I'm, I, I, I love the fact that um, there are three biblical words for repent, uh, two of which I mentioned last time, uh, nacham, which is the emotion repent, uh, relenting, feeling sorry, and shuv, which is the, um, the repentance of the will, the turning round. And then in the New Testament, there's metanoia, which is... Um, a, a, a mental intellectual thing. I love the fact that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are three words for repentance that talk about the emotions and the will and a change of thinking. Um, and um, this one, as you say, picks up on one aspect. Uh, it's easy for us to, to pick up just on one aspect of repentance. We might think of it as a change of mind. We might think of it as a change of behavior. Uh, here it's a change of feeling um, on, God, on our part that's part of that response. Well, part of, perhaps all three. Uh, in response to the strength of God's feeling, then uh, a repentance that involves feeling and thinking and action would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. 
not only that it um, refers to Israel as a son, because I feel like a lot of times Israel and a whole bunch of the other um, cities are referred to as women, and Zion and her, and that. But this time it's actually as a son, and and how um, it actually puts in context. It puts it in the right context and it has a completely different layer of meaning hmm. now. Hmm. But on top of that, like, it makes me wonder if Matthew unknowingly actually equated Jesus with having gone away from God because of the way that Jesus quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, actually refers back to Psalm 40, Psalm 22. 22. Hmm. Yeah, and and how it actually is referring to the just the beginning of it, but actually goes through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If if Matthew unknowingly made it so that people would think back to Hosea and then mm-hmm. think of how Israel had turned away. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um, usually, when I think about like restraint, I think about like taking my logical self and like exerting it over like an emotional part of me. <laughs> Years ago, uh, when Anne and I used to fight, uh, we, had an, we had an argument, uh, and then she would cry, and I would say, "That's not fair, crying, because that kind of change, you know, you can't have a decent argument if you start bringing crying in." And I'd not realised before that, as God does it, that what she should have replied is, "Well, God does it." Let's, uh, as we pray for God to uh, speak to us out of the scriptures, uh, we'll sing. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Bless thou the truth, dear Lord, to me, to me, as thou didst bless the bread by Galilee. Then shall all bondage cease, all fetters fall, and I shall find my peace, my all in all. Just wait a minute, see if we can find out what the bottom line says. The living one, okay then, right, yeah.
teach me to live, dear Lord, only for Thee. As Thy disciples lived in Galilee, then all my struggles o'er, then victory won, I shall behold Thee, Lord, the living One. Gracious God, we thank you for the way in which, as we open the Scriptures, you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for the way you reveal yourself to us through that kind of testimony in Hosea. And as we open them together tonight, we do ask that you will shape our thinking, but also our emotions and our wills, the more to be like yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can persuade it to go backwards. Oh, yes. I'll find a map again. Because some of you want to know where some of these places are in Amos. That'll probably do. Most... Right, um, uh, what were prophets such as Amos and Micah and Joel trying to do? Page 95. First, these prophets were speaking in the name of the God of Israel to the people of Israel. They were not addressing the secular state or the secular government. Um, what difference then does it make to our application of their message that for us, nation and people of God are separate? Uh, it's not surprising if the nation uh, looks at things differently from the way in which the church does. Though it may be more disturbing that it's hard to get the church to look at things uh, in light of the way that the prophets talk about the responsibility of the people of God in their day. Second, they weren't starting from the fact of injustice in the community, but from the fact of disaster or a hunch about the prospect of disaster. So Joel um, is talking, talks in terms of uh, a locust plague. Uh, one or two of you wondered, what was the point about locusts? Well, um, if locusts eat up your crops, then you see the point about locusts. Uh, it's a t it, it can be a totally devastating thing. It can destroy the entire uh, food supply for the next year um, if you get invaded by locusts. Um, I don't know. I'm not. Somebody's really want to get somebody to change the way he makes a communication very clearly in poetry because the 
Well, well, I suggested the other day that it, that can work both ways. That um, precisely because poetry makes you work hard, Je Jesus did not. When Jesus told parables, he did not speak straight. He spoke in puzzling ways. He left. He left the disciples asking afterwards. What the hell was that about? <laughs> well, imagine what the ordinary people, the non-disciples, are asking them. They're totally clueless. They go away scratching their... What was that about? They lie in bed at night wondering about what that story was about. And that's the point. Jesus did not uh, run seeker-friendly services. Uh, and, uh, and neither did Amos. Um, and so... so now, now uh, some prophets... Jeremiah would be a good example. Ezekiel as well, though he's weird in his own way. Um, Jeremiah spoke a lot in prose. So it's not the prophets always speak in, in verse. Um, I didn't do it, but uh, if you were to uh, look at all the 15 prophetic books and ask how, what proportion of prose and what proportion are poetry, then my guess is it would come out at one to, something like one to two. A third prose, two thirds poetry, something like that. Both are there. Because prose achieves certain things in terms of clarity, uh, poetry achieves other things in terms of making people think. Were you waving at me? Yeah? Well, I think two things. One is that I think that, um, well, maybe, it relate, maybe there's another question that relates to another question that people asked, but I talked about a bit on, on Monday as well, about um, it's kind of weird, uh, several people said, or it's puzzling, or on what basis does it happen, that a prophet like Amos is talking about, is or rather that God, is declaring judgment on these nations that, that weren't in covenant relationship uh, with him and didn't have the revelation uh, that there is in the Torah. Uh, but uh, the assumption that lies behind uh, the way that Amos operates is that, that that fact doesn't mean that they aren't aware of what right and wrong is. Um, there certainly are specific things that Israel knows about um, that then provide the, the raw material that for Amos's critiques uh, when, it come, when he comes to talk to Ephraim in particular. Uh, so, as somebody put it in their posting, there's a greater a responsibility or something like that uh, for uh, Israel compared with other nations. But it's not the case that the, nations, that the other nations don't know anything about what's right or wrong. Um, you don't need a special revelation to know that ripping open pregnant women in, Gil in Gilead in order to enlarge their territory isn't right. Um, and you... Uh, likewise, you don't need a special revelation in order to know that torture is wrong. Uh, so, although you can't appeal to, to uh, in our context, you can't appeal to our nation on the basis of quoting what the Bible says to them, um, that doesn't mean that the kind of things that the Bible said don't, says don't make demands on them. Uh, you can still say, excuse me, torture is wrong. You don't quote scripture in order to justify it, but you, you work on the assumption that these people are made in the image of God, and they know that, really. 
And that's part of uh, the other thing is that, that uh, what strikes as, as, a, as a foreigner, and I never know when, when, I'm, when I'm a foreigner and when, I'm, when I belong, but um, I've just stepped from belonging to being a foreigner. Uh, what, as, a, as, a, as somebody from outside um, here, I am continually astonished uh, at the potential of the Christian community for influencing the policies of the nation because so much of the nation uh, identifies uh, as Christian. Uh, and one reads so many things in the papers about, well, I, what I, remember, I often remember is, is that the Enron guys were prominent members of a church in Houston. Um, now, the, the people, lots and lots of the people of the decision makers in Washington and so on are people who are in church on Sunday. Um, and so uh, the job of the church uh, is to shape the thinking of the congregation. Uh, and, the, uh, and part of that then is that the people in the congregation who are in Washington or in business or on Wall Street or whatever are people who then go out and operate there on the basis uh, of they, again, not, not saying the Bible says, but, on the basis, but argue on the basis of the way in which their thinking has been shaped uh, by their uh, awareness of Scripture. Where's Amy Goldheimer? Where are you? Speak about that. <laughs> now she's horrified, poor girl! But you know what I mean. Yeah, that's the pedagogy class. That's <laughs> 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 but it transfers, doesn't it? Uh, t- tell them why I'm asking, why I'm f- uh, putting my finger on you. Okay, because I did my education in criminal justice and I worked in the system for a little bit. And I was thinking, how do I, I want to come to seminary and take what I, I learned here and bring it to criminal justice in terms of holistically restoring people who've been victims or offenders. And so I look at the ethics, the underlining message of the Pentateuch in terms of punishment. And I analyze that and then I apply it holistically to the justice system. And you can do that without using language. Without using Right, that's the you can do that. Uh, without you know you're not going to go back into the justice system and say the Bible says. Right. But you're going to be arguing on an ethical basis with people. Yeah. Don't you think even the average Christian works in a dualistic Oh yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah, which is exactly Amos's problem. You see, that's what the Israelites were doing. Yeah, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't accept them. Um, uh, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Somebody wanted me to wonder what that meant. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an image. Uh, it's the, the, its assumption is that justice and righteousness should be should permeate, should flow around um, the society, but it doesn't because people live with that split that you're talking about, um, and uh, uh, they did it in Amos's day. We we do it in our day too. Yeah. I find that there's a something I'm struggling with as far as if God is holding the other nations to a moralistic standard that they should know inherently, then that almost seems to, I don't know, it just it seems to imply in my mind that somehow morals is really what matters, but then there's a disconnect with what I believe the New Testament is teaching, which is the fact that morals doesn't count for anything, it really mm-hmm. is who you know. Mm-hmm. 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 So how do you, 
how do you make it so that this isn't just, I mean, this seems to argue that if the other nations were just good people, mm -hmm. they would be fine in the sight of the Lord. But mm -hmm. we try to argue against that in the in kind of second covenant land, mm -hmm. where we are saying, you know, actually it's not how good you are that doesn't save you. Mm. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that's a good point. Um, I don't think that um, Amos would be applying, would be implying, uh, if, you, if you guys put your lives right, then you'd be right with God. Uh, it's more, if the, the framework maybe to look at it from in a New Testament angle, from a New Testament point of view, might be the way that Paul talks in Romans 13 um, about the, uh, the, the authorities. Um, the authorities, the authority does not bear the sword in, sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Um, the authorities, you pay taxes with a smile on your face, says Paul. Well, I added that bit. Um, <laughs> for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. That is, sorting out what's right and wrong. Now, Paul there isn't implying that if the authorities do that, then everything is hunky-dory, uh, there's, no, there's nothing else they need. Of course, he reckons they also need to be put right with God, but that's a different subject. Um, and the same would be true when Amos is talking about the nations. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that's the only thing they need. It just means that is an important thing. But if you see it in the well, I think the reason the reason why Amos is implying that's a very that's a very important thing is because uh, well, I'm just thinking it's point ten. It's point 10. Um, remind me if I don't remember to say it when I get down there, okay? Uh, these guys were starting, um, they weren't the logic uh, of a lot of what the prophets say isn't, we can see that you're doing wrong, therefore God's going to judge you. It's, uh, we can see that there is judgment happening, or at least there is trouble happening, and we wonder why, and we provide you with the answer. Uh, now, there are both of those there, uh, but... The, the, the second of those uh, is significant in Joel um, and, um, and significant in the way that Amos talks about Yahweh roaring. Yahweh roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither. The top of Carmel dries up. In other words, there's been a drought. The, the most fruitful part of the country isn't producing fruit. Is there an explanation? Um, and, uh, and what Amos is, uh, or Joel are doing is offering explanations of what's going on. They're then urging people to turn to Yahweh. Uh, they are urging Yahweh to turn from his kind of action. Uh, and and they're promising that the things that have happened won't be the end. A prophet's job is to perceive what God is doing and to talk to the people of God and to talk to God about it. Now, uh, earlier on, I talked about the prophet standing in the council of the Lord, standing in the court, listening to declarations being made, decisions being made, and being able to speak both ways on the basis of that, being able to go back to the community um, and tell them what God is going to do, but also being able to stand in that meeting of the court um, and protest at what the court is proposing to do. Uh, the image I'm working with here is that the prophet 
is working the same way when not um, in a visionary experience in the presence of the court, but when looking at what's going on on, go, going on on the ground to see what God is doing and to talk to the people of God and to God about it. Number three, the prophets weren't social reformers making practical proposals about how to change economic and social policies. They did nothing but preach and pray. There was, there was a great protest in one of the postings about um, how useless these prophets were. I mean, all they're doing is hitting people around the head. Uh, I can't, can't find it now. Oh, here it is, yeah. Well, this is one of, one of them. Amos is full of do-nots and criticisms. But what actually is Yahweh calling for? Let's be a bit practical here. Um, and it's, um, it amuses me that the prophets have a reputation as if they were social reformers when they weren't anything of the kind. They were totally useless. The guys who were social reformers are actually the guys who produced the uh, material in the Torah. The, the guys who wrote Deuteronomy um, and even Exodus and Leviticus, they were social reformers. Deuteronomy in particular, quite plausibly, one can see, as uh, a book produced by people who have listened to the likes of Amos and Hosea um, and then tried to work out what to say practically in order to do something about the kind of criticisms that, um, the, that, that the prophets produce. Okay, here's this... Um, well, by social reformers, I mean they're not, they don't have a, a, uh, a concrete uh, vision of the kind of thing that needs to be done in the society. Um, in um, Amos, talks about selling the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Um, which presumably means either they are uh, putting them into servitude on the basis of a minute debt, um, or they are um, making sure that the decision in the court at the city gate uh, goes their way by a bribe that's quite trivial, um, but actually costs somebody their freedom or their life. trampling the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, pushing the afflicted out of the way, father and son going to the same girl, uh, which um, maybe um, presupposes a, a girl who has become the servant of a family with a view to her marrying uh, the son when she's old enough, when he's old enough, uh, but on the way she gets abused and both the father and the son uh, have sex with her. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. So they take their pledges from people, take the garments uh, from people as pledges, the garments that at night, that are, during the day are your coat, but at night are your blanket. Um, uh, you're supposed to give your, the coat back uh, as a pledge at the end of the day so that somebody can sleep in it. They're not doing that. They're, they're lolling around um, beside the altar on these garments. The, the things that the prophets are here being rude about are the kind of things that then appear um, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which the Torah then tries to do something about. Now, the, obvi the obvious inference, given the order of the books in the Bible, is the Torah laid down those requirements, and these guys that Amos is attacking are people who ignored them. But it may just as easily be the other way around. That is, that the kind of guy, on the assumption that, for instance, as, as is usually reckoned, 
that Deuteronomy is later than Amos, then what Deuteronomy is doing is trying to make some practical um, proposals about the kind of way in which the society ought to function um, in light of the critique that you find uh, in Amos. They, there are, there's a place uh, for social reformers in the sense of people with practical vision, uh, people who will be in Washington, uh, people who will draw up laws, and so on. Uh, but there is also a place for people who will preach and people who will pray, and that's what the prophets were. They were both foretellers and forthtellers. Now, the um, traditional assumption about prophets is that they are foretellers in the sense that they are people who are declaring what God is going to do, what's going to happen. They are predicting the Messiah in particular. In reaction to that, um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, critical <laughs> scholars started saying, no, you've got them wrong. They aren't really foretellers. They're more forthtellers. That is, they're telling forth what God's expectations are of people now. They're not simply foretelling things that are going to happen in 700 years' time. Um, and as usual, when people say, not this but that, the answer is both. Um, they are foretellers in the sense that they are talking, they're promising that God is going to uh, send somebody who will live up to what David was supposed to be. Um, they are promising that God will bring about the consummation of his purpose. But they are also, indeed, people who are telling forth uh, what God is going to do. Uh, they're telling forth what people uh, ought to be doing and also declaring what God intends to do. So, as I put it here, not exactly predicting the future, more telling people what God intended to do. Number five, as we've seen already, their words could hardly be used to prove that Jesus is the Messiah or that God exists or that the Bible is inspired. Their, that's their presupposition rather than their implication. Number six, it's not clear that they would have voted with any particular party. Now, in Britain, it used to be said that the Tory party, that the church was the Tory party at prayer. And then we all got enlightened and it became the Socialist Party at prayer. And uh, maybe the same thing is happening in this country. It used to be the case that uh, the church was the Republican Party at prayer. And now, um, for lots of enlightened people, it's the Democratic Party at prayer. Neither of those, probably, uh, if... Um, if the prophets were around, they would have had difficulty identifying with any party in Britain or in the USA uh, because parties by their nature um, are mixed kind of things with mixed uh, positive and negative features about them. Number seven, when they talked about the day of Yahweh or the end, this was an event to come in present experience, not one that you have to wait for the end, for the end, for. When Amos is talking about um, the day of Yahweh uh, arriving, um, you wouldn't be able to say to him 50 or 100 years later, da 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 da, didn't come, did it? Um, because, or, not, or neither would you have to say, oh Amos, now we see you were talking about something that's going to happen in 2,800 years' time. Because the fall um, of the uh, nation of Ephraim, the state of Ephraim in 722, was the day of Yahweh arriving uh, for the northern kingdom. It, it did bring about its end. Um, the fall of Judah, 150 years later. Is the day of Yahweh arriving for Judah in its own experience? Number eight, 
They often talk about the day of Yahweh or the end, but they don't very often talk about the Messiah. Um, and so in Amos, for instance, that um, passage about the day of Yahweh, the passage in which I read the bit about hating and despising your festivals, um, doesn't talk about the Messiah. Uh, and uh, when Amos says in chapter 8, verse 2, the end has come upon my people Israel, I will never again pass them by, it doesn't refer to the Messiah. Lots of you wanted to know about the second half of Amos chapter 9. So I better, better say something about that. Because certainly that's pick, picked up in the New Testament, picked up in Acts, um, as a passage that's seen as being fulfilled um, in Jesus and, and in the early church. Again, they commented on or asked whether it was typical of the prophets that they spend um, most of their time talking about uh, God bringing judgment, but then they've always, they've always got something in terms of restoration towards the end. Um, and I think that is, that is a fair description, that the balance uh, between the talk about punishment and the talk about restoration varies, as I tried to show the other day when I put on the, um, on the board the kind of percentages, uh, the ratios as there is between them. Um, Somebody else wanted to know how much of Amos really came from Amos. Uh, and I think it's probably the case that the, 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 the average critical view is that most of Amos comes from Amos, but that the last half chapter doesn't. Um, there are people who think that lots more of Amos doesn't come from Amos, but has been developed subsequently by other people. And there are people who think that the whole book um, comes from Amos, um, and uh, I can't see the way of deciding the answer to those questions, so I think they're boring. <laughs> well, no, because the, the difference from the argument with the arguments, I mean, I'm, uh, as I indicated the other day, um, oh, do you mean, it seems to me to be quite, uh, the, the way in which Isaiah 40 to 55 addresses people in the exile makes quite clear that those are promises um, that come from the period of the exile and therefore don't come from Isaiah ben Amos. Oh, that reminds me of something else. Somebody wanted to know if Amos was Isaiah's dad, which is a really neat idea, an understandable possibility, except that um, Amos's name ends in an S and Isaiah's dad's name ends in a Z, right? He's Isaiah ben Amos. So Amos was not Isaiah's dad. Um, how did I get into that? Uh, yes, Isaiah 40-55 is addressing people in the context of the exile, and so it seems to me to be certain, as certain as anything, that these chapters come from the period of the exile. Um, but, but Amos, does not at no point does Amos make it clear that it's talking, talking to a situation later than Amos's own day. So I didn't see any particular reason to see any of it as later than Amos's day, but that probably puts me in the minority um, probably most people think that the that the last half chapter, chapter nine verses eleven to fifteen, uh, is a promise from later uh, than Amos's day. Uh, one of the arguments that's been used, uh, a, a popular argument, was that that Amos would undermine his own message if he issued a, a promise of restoration to the people that he's been trying to get to believe uh, are in a terrible situation and are about to be um, destroyed by God. 
if you tell them there's going to be um, a nice ending to the story, then they stop bothering to listen to you. Um, my, um, there were some people, sometimes people ask me how I came to be enthusiastic about the Old Testament, and one of the answers is that I had two um, great Old Testament mentors, one um, at university and one at seminary. Uh, and uh, the one at seminary, Alec Matia, who wrote a big commentary on Isaiah, uh, and, a, and, a, and a, an exposition of Amos um, that InterVarsity published, um, used to argue that if Amos didn't include the kind of statement of hope that you've got in the last chapter of Amos, chapter 9, he'd be a false prophet. Because it'd give, it'd give the impression that judgment was all that God had to say. Um, and so uh, it fits that Amos has got a note of hope at the end of his book, um, with that theological point, and it fits with the nature of the rest of the prophets, because they all seemed to have some kind of indication that judgment is not God's last word for his people. Could Amos have written the last part of Isaiah? Amos was contemporary with Isaiah, so no, he couldn't have written the last part of Isaiah. <laughs> it would have had to be in Jeremiah or somebody who wrote. No, let's not start silly theories. Why not? That's what usually... I think they talked about this in that article we read about Micah, where something about mm. how the authorship had to be multiple authorship because of the fact there's some good and some bad. But what I was, I mean, I put in my post that I felt that then you'd have to call all, I mean, every single That's right. book has it's, it's a, Yeah, it's, it's a bad argument. It's a bad argument. Yeah. It's a bad argument. Yeah. Yeah. I'm coming to it, yep. Uh, so this last half chapter uh, talks, uh, interestingly, about, about God raising up the booth, the booth of David. Interesting it should be referred to David, because remember that Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom that's got nothing to do with David. Um, uh, but on the other hand, Amos is himself from Judah, so he'd have David more in the back of his mind than the people he was speaking to in Ephraim would. Um, the talking about the booth of David instead of the house of David, that's just um, language. Sometimes that image uh, is one that people use. It's a kind of archaic image for a house. So here is the household of David that God is going to restore in order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my, by my name. Now, if you think yourself back into um, uh, David's day, then uh, the period of David was one in which the people of Israel um, were as near as ever having as near as they ever were to having an empire um, and oh come on silly So uh, here's, here's Judah and Ephraim. So that's David's area, uh, the, the area around where it says um, Jerusalem and Samaria. Uh, in David's day, uh, that, that whole area uh, is, uh, is, is part, as it were, part of Israel, is under, is under Israelite control, the, the biggest empire that they ever had. Um, the people, somebody wanted to know where Eden was and what was the point about it. Oh, no, well... 
either where Moab was and what was the point, or where Edom was and what was the point. Why is, why is so much fuss about Moab and Edom? And you can see why uh, on the map, because they are their neighbors. Um, and they are thus people with whom there are often boundary disputes between um, particularly Judah and uh, Moab or Edom. Uh, the Edomites um, came to occupy much of Judean territory in the period after the exile. Um, that, that's why Herod was an Edomite, an Edomian. Uh, eventually they all got converted, which is rather neat. Um, so that uh, the, this, this, this area, again in a way, this, this whole area comes to be um, part of Israel in the sense of part of the Jewish religion. Um, but in the time of David, they are uh, separate peoples who are under the Israelite empire. And in the time of Amos, they are separate peoples uh, who are sometimes causing trouble, but whom Amos is talking about because they are the people who are around. So the nations that Amos talks about are the, the ones that circle around uh, Judah and Ephraim itself. So uh, they're going to, what, what Amos is here promising is that the nature of that Israelite control over, the, over its empire that, was, that happened in David's day is going to happen again. Um, part of the restoration of the fallen booth of David will be them being in control of those peoples around um, who, uh, who were called by Yahweh's name by virtue uh, in connection with their being under Davidic um, control. Uh, and so that situation is going to um, be restored. That's part of the restoration of the um, Davidic uh, reign, the Davidic empire. Um, Back to, uh, back to my page uh, 95, number 9. In their preaching, these prophets were often rather impolite and confrontational. They didn't identify with their congregations, but of course they weren't on the payroll. In other words, they didn't say we, like preachers are often told they should do. They said you! Um... Well, we don't know what happened to Amos, or Isaiah, or Micah, or Isaiah. Uh, uh, um, we, we know that Jeremiah did, at least in the sense that he got, um, I mean, he, he experienced the fall of Jerusalem. We know that Ezekiel did, he was taken off into exile. Um, uh, yeah, so we don't know. Well, remember, Jeremiah gives a promise to his scribe, Barak, that he'll escape with his life. When Barak is scared stiff of what's going to happen, uh, and Jeremiah says, you'll escape with your life. Um, so if that's comfort, that's comfort. Um, we don't, I don't, can't think of any examples of a prophet who did really superbly on the basis of faithfulness to God. Um, and the... Given that the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is at least uh, heavily shaped, influenced by the kind of thing that happens to prophets as, um, as those chapters themselves describe, um, then don't assume that because you're a prophet and faithful to God, therefore everything is going to be okay. 
because it probably won't be. Number 10, they knew how to communicate, but they were failures. Now, that's, um, that's, that's the point at which I'll come back to the, those questions about Amos. Um, in, in chapters, and, and when Amos is talking about the foreign nations, because when Amos is talking about the foreign nations, uh, his, his concern is to uh, get Israel to listen. And it's a superb piece of communication. Because what he does is talk about how God is going to bring judgment uh, on the nations around. And you can imagine the people he's, he's um, proclaiming to cheering his every word. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Oh, great! Uh, why three transgressions and for four? Well, for innumerable, for, for transgression after transgression. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Oh, great! For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Oh, terrific! For three transgressions of Edom and for four, oh, that's even better because they're the guys just down the street. The Ammonites, oh, great! The Moabites, oh, this gets better every paragraph. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, oh, these rotten, self-righteous Judeans down the road as well. For three transgressions of Israel and for... And then you suddenly realize that he's talking about you. Um, and that uh, the way in which... Uh, and, and that he's actually been softening you up all this way, that you are in as bad a situation as anybody else. You've had it. Indeed, you're in a worse situation than anybody else because as he goes on to, to show, the, um, the kind of way in which you have ignored um, what God has to say is much worse than the kind of way that the Moabites or the Edomites or whoever have ignored what God had got to say. Um, because you, you had more revelation than they had. Um, so Amos is superb at, at communication. Another example is, um, is the one in chapter 5, where you're walking down the street um, and uh, you, you hear a funeral party. Um, and you listen to the funeral lament. Uh, and you, you ask who's died, and you discover you have. Fallen no more to rise is maiden Israel, forsaken on her land with no one to raise her up. Oh, this is in brackets again. There are lots of brackets tonight, so this is kind of another byway. Um, your, your, question, your comment about gender. Um, there were several people asked about gender of um, cities and nations and so on. And I got a great reply, but this one is going to subvert my reply. Because the answer is that, generally speaking, nations are masculine and cities are feminine. Uh, that's um, pretty much only a grammatical point. That is, there's no... It doesn't mean that a nation is thought of as being female... Uh, or rather as being male or at least it, does, it doesn't in itself mean that the nation is being thought of as being male and a city is thought of as being female but, one, but given that the words are themselves masculine, gen, masculine uh, gender or feminine gender it opens up the possibility of kind of playing with that um, way of thinking um, and so uh, the fact that Israel is referred to as, as a son um, is significant, it would be uh, it's, it's slightly uh, odder to refer to maiden Israel, as Amos does here. Uh, conversely, uh, it's very common to talk about cities as, uh, as in effect, as, as a girl or as a woman. 
to talk about daughters. The phrase you get in the old translations is daughter of Zion, but it's not a, it's like city of Pasadena. It doesn't mean it's Zion's daughter. It means a daughter who consists in Zion. Um, and, and so you can think of a, a city as, um, a, as a girl, and sometimes <coughs> they play with that. Sorry, I don't understand the question. Usually, usually if it, Israel, usually if it, when the verb, the, uh, when Israel has a verb, Israel does this or that, it'll be a masculine verb. If Jerusalem does this or that, it'll be a feminine verb. Or, or it's got, if it's got an adjective, then it would be a feminine um, adjective. That's right, yes, 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 that's right. Or French, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. yeah. Or Greek, yeah. I'm sorry? Uh, well, I, I believe you. Uh, let's say the, the very fact that Israel is referred to as a maiden is kind of exception to the rule. So I'm giving you the, I was giving you the general rule. Um, so uh, Amos is a superb communicator, but he's a, but like Jesus, uh, but he's a failure like Jesus. Um, and that's uh, prophets. Prophets were. Um, number eleven. The prophets, these prophets, invite us to be critical of ourselves, not of anyone not present, and in a way that leads us to take action in our own lives and with respect to our own relationship with God. It's very easy in preaching um, to be rude about the nation, uh, and not uh, and not to be and not and therefore not to be speaking who, to people who aren't here. Uh, and the only basis for doing that, Amos suggests. Is, the, is if, in a minute, you're going to kick the congregation in the teeth. Because that's what Amos does. Don't critique people who are not in front of you. The object is to lead us to take action in our own lives with respect to our own relationship with God. And number 12, looking at the prophets in light of the two-thirds world and colonial contexts uh, may often help us understand aspects of the prophets. Um, Daniel Carroll, who teaches at Denver Seminary, is from Guatemala, I think, uh, and has written uh, more than one book about Amos uh, in which he's able to see things in Amos because of the angle from which he's coming. Um, uh, Jose Porfirio Miranda is a Latin American, I'm sorry, I think, I think he's Argentinian, um, who wrote a great book called Marx and the Bible, which is a worrying title in a way. It makes you sound as if he's just going to read communism into, uh, into the Bible, which he doesn't. Well, which he only does sometimes. Uh, but but the, um, the angle from which he comes, again, enables, us to, enables him to see things uh, in the prophets that you, you easily miss uh, with the best will in the world if you're middle-class bourgeois people like most of us.
Probably. Um, okay, talk to each other for two or three minutes about what you think or what you thought or think Amos and Micah and Joel were trying to do um, and in what sense you think there might be models for us. What were they trying to do, and in what sense are they models for us? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, do you mean Amos chapter 8 verse 2? Do you mean Amos chapter 8 verse 2? Sorry, chapter 9 verse 2. No, sorry, it's not wrong again. Uh, chapter 8 verse 3. Okay, people. No. Uh, Short, sweet. And you love it when he does that. There, you may not. Okay, okay, okay. Here are three sermons on the prophets. Page 96 and 97. Um, first, from Amos. How to respond when people tell you to go home. Amos comes as a man from the south, preaching in the capital in the north, a country bumpkin from East Tennessee, preaching on the steps of the White House. But he knows that you can't keep religion out of politics. Compare Stephen Carter, uh, the uh, African-American professor of law at Yale, uh, urging the nation to heed religious voices. There, Amos is confronted by the White House chaplain, Amaziah, who tells him his preaching is not in his own interests or in anybody else's, who would be wise to catch the first plane back to Chattanooga. Amaziah 
doesn't realize that it's always wise to listen to your enemies and to voices from strange quarters. Amos has two things to say in reply. One is that Amaziah doesn't understand what's going on. Amos is not there by choice, but because the Lord called him. He knows that you can't keep politics out of religion. He couldn't be faithful to God without raising the kind of questions he's, asking, he's raising. I was very struck when Bernice King, Martin Luther King's daughter, uh, preached here a few years ago, how instinctively um, that came out in what she'd got to say. The other thing that, that um, Amos has got to say um, in reply to Amaziah is that Amaziah and the whole country is in danger of paying a terrible price for thinking that you can send a prophet back home. It's dangerous to ignore gloomy prophets. What happens to people who seek to get Europe to own the state of the church there or to get the US church to see how it is headed in the same direction? Compare the Can Canadian Archbishop asking what it would be like to be a church with without assets as his church's assets disappear. And then over the page, Micah, Micah chapter 7. How to hold the city before God. Much of the LA metropolitan area is characterized by poverty, deprivation, decay, family breakdown, neglect, violence, and other sin. If there is a city in the world that is under the control of territorial spirits, it's LA. How are we to respond to that? Micah suggests five reactions and awarenesses before God. First, lament. Micah speaks as if he were a poor person allowed to collect the gleanings after harvest. He looks, but there's nothing to collect. He looks for signs of hope in his society, but all he can see is gloom in the nation, in the local community, in the family. Despite that, second his second reaction is expectancy. There are no grounds for expectancy, yet he faces the facts rather than hiding from them. His realism includes a facing of sin. In these verses, he speaks for Israel and not acknowledging the sin of the people of God that has brought them into humiliation. Micah can face all manner of facts because the basis of his hope is that God is a saviour and will vindicate God's own honour. Somebody in a question, somebody in one of the postings was worried, well, just raised the question of God being concerned about his own um, self-image. Oh, it was actually, it was a posting with regard to Hosea. Yahweh stops punishing people out of respect for his own self-image. People would be saying, where is your God now? Uh, yeah, apparently that's true. But then, um, as God is God, um, it's good that his honor should be vindicated. Yep, that's right, yeah. Third reaction, in response to expectancy, there is God's promise. Micah speaks of a future that will be a blessing never before experienced. In return, the response to God's promise is prayer. Because prayer lays hold on the promises of God. It's a prayer for the blessing of the people. Bashan and Gilead um, are the two areas to the um, east of the River Jordan. Uh, that uh, Bashan is the Golan Heights and Gilead is a bit further south. Um, which were places of rich pasturage. So this is a prayer for the blessing of the people and a prayer for the honouring of their God. And then fifthly, the whole book closes with the response of worship. Who is a God like you? Powerful to deal with the church's sin, 
compassionate with its failures, faithful to its promises that stand forever. And then Joel um, Christians sometimes think on the basis of a remark um, in John's Gospel that the Holy Spirit hadn't been active in Old Testament times. But according to the Old Testament from the beginning of Israel's experience God's Spirit had been alive in Israel's midst. A person's spirit is their personal dynamic expressing itself in powerful actions that fulfill their will. So God's spirit is God's personal dynamic expressing itself in powerful actions that fulfill God's will. Although Israel knew that God's spirit had come to dwell in their midst, at the same time they knew it was possible to grieve God's spirit and for God's spirit to be withdrawn. The failure that had led to the locust plague would be bound also to involve the withdrawing of that spirit. Merely renewing nature would therefore not solve the problem that the locust plague exposed. Something else was needed. And verses 28 to 29, the verses about the Spirit, promise that further gift. In the past, women and men had prophesied. They'd had revelatory dreams. They'd seen visions. In Joel's day, that perhaps seemed to belong to the distant past. God promises that it will again become present reality. Indeed, it may promise that God will do something more spectacular than the people have previously known. Prophecy, dreams and visions will be more prevalent than they've been before. Whether this is something new or not, age and sex and class won't, won't contain, constrain the pouring out of God's Spirit. Acts 2 sees this promise fulfilled at the first Pentecost. But we know that nevertheless it is not now fulfilled in the life of the church. You had very few things that are described in Joel in church last Sunday. The promise in Joel therefore provides a basis for praying, expecting and acting so that it may be so. Uh, Acts 2 uh, also sees the uh, later verses about portents and whatnot being fulfilled at Pentecost. To us it probably looks more like a description of cataclysmic events at the end of the kind that are also described in a passage like Luke 21. And that reflects the fact that Pentecost itself is indeed a partial realization of the end. Joel promises that when, when cataclysms like the flood threaten the world, it's an invitation to us to turn to God for protection. There's a point there about the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament that it's perhaps worth me spelling out. Because the usual Christian assumption is in the Old Testament, they were told some things that God was going to do, but they didn't actually happen. In the New Testament, they all come about, so everything is now hunky-dory. Uh, I want to uh, suggest that another way of looking at it is at least as scriptural and more realistic, which is that within the Old Testament, they had both promises and fulfillments. Um, and within the life of the church, um, we do not always live with the fulfillment that the New Testament talks about. I mean, if this is all it is, then it seems to me we're in a mess. Um, and so uh, the, it's not, uh, the, con the, the appropriate contrast is not simply one between Israel didn't have it, we do. But Israel sometimes had it and sometimes uh, lost it and then God promised it again and they got it again. And likewise the church got it and lost it and there's the possibility of gaining it again. And that's the basis upon which it's possible to treat 
the, Alter, the way the Old Testament talks, not as something that belonged way back then but isn't significant for now because it's been fulfilled, but rather to see us in a similar position to Israel's position, not in that radically different position. Hello? Uh, I mean that you didn't, you didn't see many, many miracles in church on Sunday. Anybody see a miracle in church on Sunday? Anybody see anybody healed? Anybody see anybody raised from the dead? But healed. Okay, praise God. Um, not many of you heard speaking in tongues on Sunday? Not many of you had prophecies? Sorry? Uh, I, I said not many of you. Yeah, so, so, yeah but uh, nothing. So, so we do not, in our regular church experience, have the kind of experience of God's um, activity that the New Testament sees coming about at Pentecost and that you t- see talked about in the uh, churches in the New Testament. And so, uh, so we've, we've an awful lot, as it were, we, we're in the same position as the people in Joel's day. Um, and, and therefore, the fact that God gives these terrific promises through Joel is really good news for us. If, the, if God gave those promises in Joel and they'd been fulfilled and they're irrelevant to us, we're in a really bad way. But if we see ourselves in the same position as the people in Joel's day, then there's something for us to look for God to, uh, to do. Uh, I, I'd rather not deal with that now. Sorry. Um, I talked just now about Danny Carroll, um, and I've just, uh, uh, I want to read a couple of quotes from him reflecting on Amos in light of his experience in Guatemala. The world of the book of Amos can trigger reflection on the different expressions of Christian faith within, Latin, within Central America. Within that textual world, Yahweh, that is Amos, Yahweh stands over against the use of his person for the military convictions and hubris, pride, of Israel. In the modern context, we need to let the text challenge us to ask, how has Yahweh uh, been utilized to legitimate postures of violence and identified with particular political persuasions or regimes in the world. At the same time, in Central America, where many feel compelled to take options, we wrestle with the question of whose side might Yahweh be on. With claims on God from across the political spectrum, I wonder if the best we can say in light of this text is that Yahweh is within our history and that he is committed to the destruction of all regimes of war and all military pretense. Could we not entertain the possibility that Yahweh is permitting the tearing down of our warlike world and allowing our self-destruction because of the commitment of some to causes of the right or the left which can strip Yahweh in order to justify their cause and political aspirations? In the reality of the book of Amos, there are no heroes or martyrs. I like that sentence. In the reality of the book of Amos, there are no heroes or martyrs. Just the ugliness of war, the wailing in the streets and the suffering of guilty and innocent alike. Maybe it must be so also with us. But the text will not allow the reader to forget the hope of another reality. Chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, offers a vision of peace and reconstruction. Do our theologies in Central America proclaim peace, a peace like that in the textual world, that is a negation of the present and that makes no sense apart from the horrors of today's realities, is the God of the churches ultimately a God of peace? How do, we, can we, how do we, can we, contribute to national reconstruction during and beyond the political negotiation process? How can the churches participate in an alternative future 
that must be built upon the ruins of conflict? Can we speculate on mediations of the future? What shape would these take? How should the church nurture a people of peace? How can the church's liturgy stimulate worshippers to consider and embrace peace? Questions arise abruptly and starkly in the search for a viable theology and the incarnation of Christian virtue and vision. A literary reading of the prophetic text, just as, such as the one offered here, may not solve all the hermeneutical, theological, and ethical issues that arise within our Central American context, but it can invite the reader to live the tension of war and peace. I submit that a pacifist position should consider this literary tension between Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, and the God of peace, and between judgment and hope. Perhaps the deity is to be experienced in that very tension which is the reality of everyday life in the church in Central America in its pilgrimage to a different future. Um, and then uh, from a, a later book of his, a quote from a later book of his, for those who have lived in a country at war, the movement of language between phrases saying that all will die to others suggesting the survival of some makes perfect sense. War is hell. Bodies lying everywhere, people mourning in the fields of battle, the poor scratching out a living against all odds, while others in the capital city drink and dine in comfort. All these are description of, descriptions in the prophetic text of Amos, which are not uncommon pictures in Guatemala's recent past, where hundreds of thousands have been killed, orphaned, widowed, exiled or displaced, whereas others seem to live as if untouched by the conflict. In such a situation of extreme loss, a few words which speak of rebuilding ruins, accompanied by general descriptions of peace and plenty, such as those in chapter 9, are vague enough not to promise anything too specific, but concrete enough to make the horror endurable. That's neat. The, the kind of hopes expressed in image, image terms in chapter 9 are vague enough not to promise anything too specific, but concrete enough to make the horror endurable, because they did give you some hope, they did give you some imagery. This, the brief hope passage, in other words, ideologically coheres with the war context. In Guatemala, we live now between the time of war and the actualization of hope. The people live between the lines, some somewhere between chapter 9, verse 10, um, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say evil shall not overtake or meet us. And chapter 9, verse 11, on that day I'll raise up the bull of David that's fallen. We live in between those two verses, he says. If one stands in that seam between despair and expectation, one can look forward to the hope passage or back to the description of the earlier part of the book. The goals and hopes, uh, the, the images of politics and economics uh, that Amos can generate, uh, speak meaningfully and realistically to the here and now. The challenge is thinking through how to actualize these images triggered by the text into daily life at all levels of existence. That's what I talked about as the job of the social reformer or the Deuteronomist. Um, take the images uh, triggered by the text into daily life at all levels of existence. 
ask what the visions of the prophets mean um, when you're policy making in Washington. Guatemala now lives between the lines in, the space be in that space between historical memory and a new reality. In the meantime, in between those lines, the Christian church can participate in both activities, healing wounds and working towards peace. One must never forget that living between the lines should not be a place to dig roots. It is but a stop in the journey from what was to a different tomorrow. After all, Amos does end with 9, 11 to 15. Uh, uh, come back in 20 minutes. I did. Yeah, I said that they were the nations in David's day who were um, that, part of. That bear my name. Yes, I said. Yeah, they were the nations who 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 were part of Israel and therefore bore Yahweh's name in David's day, and that will happen again. Okay. Okay.